The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So the translation that Steve Armstrong gives is all conditioned things arise and pass away. Understanding this deeply leads to the greatest happiness, which is peace. And I'll talk about this more tonight, but let's chant the Pali three times. If you're unfamiliar, just listen the first time, you'll pick it up. And then we'll read the, uh, I'll read the English translation one more time when we're done chanting the Pali three times. Anicca Vata Sankara Upadavaya Damino Upachituva Nirushanti Te Sang Upasamo Sukho Anicca Vata Sankara Upadavaya Damino Upajituva Niruchanti Te Sam Upasamo Sukho Anicca Vata Sankara Upadavaya Damino Upajituva Niruchanti Te Sam Upasamo all conditions, things arise and pass away. Understanding this deeply leads to the greatest happiness, which is peace. So last night um, we began just as a review with the recognition of this central value we have for calm, for relaxation, for peace. Because even very ordinary states of calm remind us of something that is uh, earth-shaking, you know, that it's safe, it's okay to relax, it's okay to put the struggling down. It questions the habit of suffering or reacting. Maybe suffering, maybe reactivity is optional. Maybe tension is optional. And of course, the other value in calm, besides the taste of peace that calm gives us, is it supports clear seeing. You can't actually see very clearly when the mind's agitated, when the mind's disturbed, when we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're feeling needy. In the Buddhist model, you know, the problem is ignorance, not seeing things clearly. And one formulation of that is this confusion between the mind and experience, or the mind and what's known, the knower and the known. These things get mixed up, and a lot of problems arise from that. 
So as a practitioner, we're interested in seeing how we can cultivate calm and the clarity that comes with the calm. So we're learning different ways, not always pretty ways, not always free of mess. You know, sometimes it's messy. Even doing the practice is messy. In some ways, it feels simpler just to go along with the cultural stream, with the, our own habit stream. It feels more messy to sign up for a retreat or to establish a daily sitting practice or to develop the precepts of non-harming, not stealing. But um, we're learning that there's no way forward to real peace unless somehow we gain some clarity. So we're learning how to seclude ourselves from things that are agitating. That's really what calm is. We're taking the mind, the activity of the mind, and we're orienting or directing or shepherding it away from things that are agitating. And so what's agitating? Well, we all know what's agitating. You know, thinking about myself is agitating. Thinking about what I want, thinking about what I'm afraid of is agitating. So self-centered drama is agitating. So calm arises when the mind is secluded from self-centered drama. But these, uh, you know, the different ways that we practice calm and the ways that we support clarity, most of these are temporary states. You know, we get some continuity with the breath or with the loving kindness phrases. And the mind is relatively secluded from its neurotic activity. It's worrying, it's planning, it's wondering, it's comparing, it's judging. We feel the benefit from that temporary seclusion. But we want to recognize it's a temporary seclusion, that the, the calm is fragile. Just like, you know, you might get in your car tonight feeling calm and sort of in a wholesome, beautiful place. And then you turn the radio on reflexively, and there's some story that triggers a lot of reactivity in mind. And not only are you reacting to what you heard on the radio, but you might also react to the fact that you turn the radio on. You know? And then realizing that that isn't skillful, reacting to that. You know, it's just layer after layer. So we can be, by the time we get home, even if you live really close, <laughs> we can be in a real knot. I'm sure you've discovered this. So in that experience of calm, of feeling relatively secluded from neurotic, self-centered activity, mental activity, we just uh, allow the aspiration or the value of freedom to arise, like uh, ease, a peace, a calm that's not fragile, so that whatever pleasant, wholesome state of mind we've fallen into or that we've realized, like as if this uh, wasn't, isn't fragile to changing conditions. Like we hold that as a possibility. What's in the way of that? 
think I read last night this uh, statement of the Buddhas from the Dhammapada, some, a statement he made shortly after his enlightenment. Opened are the doors to the deathless. Those with ears to hear, release your faith. So I like this as an invitation. Why not open our mind to the possibility of an unconditioned freedom, not dependent on being on retreat, not dependent on being a skillful person or having good habits, not dependent on anything. And this, you see that as long as our happiness, as long as our calm, as long as our wholesome states of mind are dependent on something, then we live in dependency. We live dependent on that and we're frightened that it won't always be that way. Because whatever we're dependent on, whatever that is, we know, whether we remember it consciously or not in that moment, but we know it's fragile, that everything is subject to change. So dependence is the equivalent of attachment. When our happiness is dependent, then there's some attachment. When the heart mind feels independent of conditions, then we call that right view. So right view is an independence, is a way of being, a wholesome way of being independent uh, independent of the particular conditions. (coughs) This is from uh, Achan Cha's book recently published, Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away. So it's a collection of teachings on impermanence and the end of suffering. If we don't understand dharma, if we don't know the mind and don't know phenomena, then the mind and its objects get mixed together. Then we experience suffering and feel that our minds are suffering. We feel our minds are wandering uncontrollably, experiencing different unhappy conditions, changing into different states. That's not, that's not really the case. There aren't many minds, but many phenomena. But if we aren't aware of ourselves, we don't know our minds, and so we follow after these things. People say, my mind is upset, my mind is unhappy, my mind is scattered. But that's not really true. The mind isn't anything. The defilements are. People think their minds aren't comfortable or happy, but actually the mind is the most comfortable and happy thing. When we experience the different unsatisfactory states, that is not the mind. Make note of this. When you are experiencing these things in the future, remember, Ajahn Chah said, this is not the mind. And then a little later in this chapter, called, uh, titled, Understanding the Mind. A little later he says, the mind in its natural state, the true mind, is something that is stable and undefiled. It is bright and clean. It becomes obscured and defiled because it meets with sense objects and comes under their influence through liking and disliking. It's not that the mind is inherently defiled, but that it is not yet established in Dharma, so phenomena can stain it. The nature of the original mind is unwavering. It is tranquil. We are not tranquil because we are excited over sense objects. 
And so we end up as slaves to the changing mental states that result. So practice really means searching to find our way back to the original state, the old thing. It is finding our old home, the original mind, that does not waver and change following various phenomena. It is by nature perfectly peaceful. It is something that is already within us. We hear something like that. It's a little bit, uh, you don't hear this kind of description too often because partly it's not traditional in Theravada Buddhism and partly it's easy to get attached to the idea of that sort of inherent beautiful truth of our mind or of our heart. So if we objectify it, this kind of teaching isn't so helpful. But if we hear something like this, you know, about the nature of the mind, it can inspire us to look, to practice. That's useful. To put down our arrogant notion that our mind's a mess and that's just it, you know. Because this is, you know, we have, most of us, at least at times, we have pretty strong opinions, arrogant opinions about our mind. And even more so, I find, for myself, about other people's minds. <laughs> you know, it's like hard enough to open our mind to this possibility, but to do that for other people too. So when we see other people, and of course, what catches our eye, so to speak, is all the defilements, you know, all the conditioned aspects of somebody's mind, all the manifestations or expressions of somebody's personality. But to not get confused by the manifestations, the expressions, but to see something pure and empty and free underneath. That's a real invitation. I remember feeling that at times, not even that often, but at times with some of my teachers. You know, I might go into the interview a mess, a neurotic mess, and but somehow that expression doesn't confuse the teacher. You know, that they're able to know that that's just conditioning, expressing itself beautifully and naturally. It is inherently not a problem for neurotic qualities to express themselves in the mind. The problem is when we take those neurotic expressions personally. We get confused by them. The mind and the phenomena and experience get mixed up, as Ajahn Chah says. And this is really the heart of our practice. Gaining some calm or developing the mind's capacity to see clearly, which is really primarily based or determined by the, the degree of seclusion. When the mind is heavily under the influence of its agitating and neurotic tendencies, its self-centered dramas, it's not a very worthy instrument to see things clearly as they are. So we develop our skill, develop the art of calm and clarity in order to understand the nature of the mind and the nature of phenomena. Another place in this book, Ajahn Chah says, all things just as they are display the truth, but we have biases and preferences about how we want them to be. We are practicing to become like the Buddha, the knower of the world. That's actually, I think the Buddha used that as a way of defining the Buddha, of defining himself. Because presumably, at least, 
due to the Buddha's deep insight, he didn't, he wasn't confused by the different expressions of his personality. He didn't take himself to be the manifestations of his personality. It didn't mean he didn't have a personality anymore. Obviously he did. He taught for 40-some years. You know, he interacted with people of all kinds. So clearly he had a functioning personality. But he didn't take that to be who he was. That was just the natural expression of the kind of um, inherent or the uh, established conditions, conditioning of the mind. So when people ask, well, who are you? You know, he would say, well, I'm the Dhamma. Dhamma, you know, it's like the Buddha and the Dhamma, they're not different. Or he would say something like the knower of the world. So he would uh, sort of point to this essence or inherent quality of mind that's not distinguished by this person or that person. It's not like the Buddha, as an individual, is the only knower of the world. He's just pointing to that inherent quality of the mind that's often obscured. The Buddha, the knower of the world, and the world is these phenomena abiding as they are. And so that's a description of Nibbana, or peace, or freedom, is this way of being where the Buddha, the knower of the world, is seeing the world, phenomena abiding as they are. And obviously, those two things are co-arising. They're not like in different locations. The knower of the world is like over there in heaven, and then the world is over here. But obviously, the experience like the Buddha as a as an archetype, you know, he was right there in the mess, in the middle of things, in the middle of politics, in the middle of running a, a, a you know, a developing organization, a huge organization by the time of his death, and all the factions and all that that, that entails, and dealing with the culture with all of its sort of institutionalized ignorance that any culture has. So he's right there in the middle of it. But we can hold as this possibility of the mind not having a problem with phenomena. Just to stay open to what that might be, there's a beautiful poem uh, from the suttas and the discourses of the Buddha on the perversions of the mind. So the Buddha talked about the per- per- perversions of perception of the mind of view, and there are four. And then after this talk, he he expressed this poem: perceiving constancy in the inconstant. Pleasure in the stressful, self in what's not self, attractiveness in the unattractive. Beings destroyed by wrong view go mad out of their minds, bound to Mara's yoke. From the yoke they find no rest. Beings go on to the wandering on, leading to birth and death. But when awakened ones arise in the world, bringing light to the world, They proclaim the Dhamma, leading to the stilling of stress. When those with discernment listen, they regain their senses, seeing the inconstant as inconstant, the stressful as stressful, what's not self as not self, the unattractive as unattractive. Undertaking right view, they transcend all stress and suffering. 
So, as I mentioned, uh, calm and clarity <coughs> is an, uh, something beautiful in and of itself, but it's really, uh, in this system of practice, it's really used as a kind of force or strength, or I think you can even use the word ground, a kind of ground to support insight. And this can be confusing because, you know, of course, when we're feeling good, when we're feeling calm and content and peaceful and clear, it's very easy to want to just stay there in that experience. But the idea is not to become dependent on anything. So, in a sense, we're taking that calm and clear mind into the into the world, into the world of experience, not uh, attaching, not uh, fixating on the experience of seclusion. You see how that is. It's like we're trying to realize the heart or mind that doesn't actually have a problem with the world. So this is why the Buddha gives us, you know, the three, uh, three of the four. Uh, contemplations that we're working with, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the impersonal nature, conditional nature of all things. Because they're just ways to come into the world. Like we're learning to come into the world by seeing that everything's changing, or seeing that whatever the mind attaches to, fixates on, there's tension, immediate tension. Or seeing how everything is impersonal, not self comes and goes due to causes and conditions. Or the last one that I added on just as a, to kind of round out the possibilities of practice, this practice of dana, giving away, is just another way to a challenge, uh, to sort of expose the heart to dhamma the way it is. So giving things away, like giving away our joy, giving away our good wishes, is... Um, not what a neurotic, self-centered being wants to do. We want to receive the good wishes. We want to, we're kind of like that pack rat mentality. We want to hold on to our goodness. We want to, you know, it's like uh, we reconstitute the self by this end, almost seemingly endless kind of regurgitation of our self-centered thoughts. So to appreciate what's beautiful, to send out compassion and love, it's sort of, it's a self-forgetting to do that. So it challenges, it sort of exposes this uh, dhamma, the way things are. This is from Jack Hornfield and Joseph Goldstein's book, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. It's a wonderful book, written quite a while ago now. And in there, they have chapters and all the different models that the Buddha uses, including the three characteristics of, that we've been working with, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. So Jack Hornfield wrote this chapter on the three characteristics. And in there, he says, sometimes the deepening experience of the three characteristics becomes confusing. We may have practiced for a number of years and become a bit more calm and balanced as a result of it. But in the back of our minds, we think of how our practice should develop further. After all this time, 
shouldn't we be experiencing more of the factors of enlightenment? We expect more more bliss or stillness or profound clarity, more ease and joy. Yet what do we actually see? More impermanence, more emptiness, more unsatisfactoriness and suffering. We see it, we feel it more clearly, and we think something is wrong with our practice. Practice is the deepening realization of these basic truths. Each of them is a gate to liberation, a gate to freedom. If we can understand and fully accept it at the very deepest level of meditation, a moment of full acceptance at one of these gates and a full letting go brings us to what is beyond it, the unconditioned, to Nibbana. So again, just to say this in another way and to repeat what I said earlier tonight, I find it useful, maybe it isn't as useful for you, but for me it's really useful to have a a model, a conceptual model about how freedom, how this insight arises. And uh, I'm really grateful for how the Buddha was able to articulate how the mind realizes what it hasn't yet realized. And it's a simple mechanism. We this, uh, what we call the Buddha, the mind that knows, is always here. It's not like it ever isn't here. So there's a simple mechanism. We, we activate the mind that knows by orienting our conventional mind in these particular ways, like toward impermanence. When we train the mind to see change, to see how everything is uncertain, everything is unstable, it sort of forces the, this heart that is inherently free and undefiled, it sort of forces its hand. Because it's the only thing that can be intimate with change. Any part of our conventional mind, our conditioned mind, it won't be intimate with change. It will try to organize it. It will try to tell itself a story about it. It will try to somehow create ground because our conventional mind, our conditioned mind, our thinking mind, it depends on permanency. It's built upon ideas of permanency and ground. So when we open to the instability, the uncertainty, the unreliability, the impermanence, that's always here. When we train and develop the confidence or the faith to look there, well, we begin to, uh, that that heart is revealed little by little. And this is what uh, Jack Kornfield is is talking about. At the very deepest level of meditation, a moment of full acceptance at one of these gates, so anicca, dukkha, anatta, and a full letting go, that's another way of saying being intimate, brings us to what is beyond it, the unconditioned, Tinibana, the cessation of all resistance, the cessation of this constant creation of ground, of a self. There's a really nice interview um, almost 10 years ago in Inquiring Mind with Joseph Goldstein. They, they did a whole issue on impermanence. Unfortunately, 
I'm pretty sure that the past issues aren't on the internet. Um, but I'll read a few passages from that interview with Joseph. In the beginning of that interview, he says, the three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness, are a clear and succinct description of the nature of conditioned phenomena. So this is important. So the, the Buddha isn't saying that these three conditions describe ultimate reality. He's just saying, from this point of view, which is exactly the kind of teaching you need, you need a teaching that uh, really for us, <laughs> that's useful for us. So it's a description of conditioned reality, that things change, that there's suffering when the mind gets attached, when we're identified, and that things are conditional, that there's no center. And he goes on, he says, when we look, we see that all experience is, a constantly, ch is constantly changing that it is therefore ultimately unreliable and that experience is arising out of the conditions rather than simply our wish that things be a certain way. However, just understanding these three characteristics is not the end. It is the wisdom that comes from experiencing them deeply that frees the mind from grasping. And then the interviewer says, so the three characteristics are the skillful means and a mind without clinging is the fruit. And Joseph responds, that's right. The three characteristics are not just philosophical statements about the nature of the universe. That is not what is important. They are practices. There is a great paradox here because these truths are at once both obvious and hidden. They are obvious when we make the right effort to actually awaken to them in the moment. And they are hidden when we are simply carried along by the habit energies of our lives. For example, on one level, impermanence is so obvious to almost any, uh, everyone. On the whole, we generally ignore it. That on the whole, we generally ignore it. And isn't this true? I mean, how many times does it occur to us that things are changing? But when we think about it, it's obvious. Well, yeah, things are changing. But isn't it interesting, even though it's so easy to see, how easily we don't notice that through our day. We don't notice that the day's ended. We don't notice that, you know, already we're a third of the way into the retreat. Already 2009 is ending. I was astounded. I don't know. Oh, I, I, um, maybe I'll read a poem tonight. And I was looking at this person died, and the poem is, is about impermanence. He was a Buddhist uh, scholar, the Tibetan tradition. But anyway, I was looking at his birth date. You know, he was born in '48 and died in 2000. And you know, it was just, you know, we thought, oh, '48. That's right at the, you know, halfway mark of the century. Oh, I was born in '58. I was, thinking, I was thinking I was born so much later in the century, you know, and I realized, well, 58, that's just eight years, you know, past the midpoint. And I thought, well, yeah, and it's just, you know, the century has just changed. And I was, no, actually, the first decade's over, <laughs> you know. It's like, wow, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's, and what's amazing, of course, isn't that, you know, it's almost 2010. What's amazing is how unfamiliar that all is to my mind. 
how much time has passed is so unfamiliar. I mean, it's like when I reflected, it was like amazing to think, oh, you know, there were four decades. Is that right? There were four decades I lived through in the 1900s. That amazes me because I just had in my mind that I was sort of born near the end of the century because 2000 seemed to come around. You know, I was always anticipating 2000 even before it came. And to think, well, boy, 42 years happened before 2000. And already, you know, 10 years have happened. It is such an ordinary truth that we don't give it any importance. And yet, when we do pay attention to it, when we bring some real interest and energy to that scene, when we are actually vitally experiencing the impermanence of our present experience, in that moment, the mind is not clinging. This is an immediate fruit, a mind free of contraction, a relaxed heart. So this is just something to test out. Is this true? When we cultivate, if Let's say that's one of the themes you've taken up for the retreat. So you cultivate impermanence as a theme. Is it liberating? Does it have a liberating effect on the heart? I mean, in the same way, it's pretty obvious if we take up permanence as an orientation, like we we're kind of attached to the health we have now, or oblivious to the fact that our health is a fragile thing, is an uncertain thing that our life is uncertain, that everything we possess is uncertain. But when we fixate, when we go the other direction and, and really think about permanency, take things to be permanent that aren't, it's stressful because we have to live in denial of all the evidence that things are changing. Like when we think death is distant, we can't, we can't be aware. We have to be somehow in our mind, we have to sort of put in a box the fact that our good friend Rini Howard is, seems to be very close to death, and she's just 54. And how can that be? You know, because I don't feel close to death. Does anybody here feel close to death? And yet we all know, you know, if we, if we let ourselves remember, we know that we know people who have died before 54, and probably all of us know people who died in their 40s, suddenly, unexpectedly. So is that, is that recognition liberating, or is it heavy? And then if it's heavy, we want to explore that. Well, does it need to be heavy? You know, maybe the heaviness isn't the recognition of an uncertainty. Maybe on some level our heart hasn't opened to it completely. So then we explore, well, let me open to this a little bit more. Let me see if it's really okay that things change or are uncertain. <laughs> Later in the interview, the, the interviewer asks, um, how can we cultivate the ability to be more aware of impermanence? And Joseph says, put a big sign on the refrigerator, pay attention to change. <laughs> There's a positive side, of course, to impermanence. You know, we often talk about used death, but just the fact that 
we can work with this mind depends on impermanence. You know, if we were really caught in our identification with the conditioned habits of the mind, well, there would be no point to practice. I mean, the fact that things are permanent means that everything is transformable. So that's really wonderful. I mean, all creativity, all change, positive, negative, or in between, is because of impermanence. Nothing is fixed. There's this beautiful statement from the Buddha describing uh, the insight into impermanence as a transforming moment. And I'll read a few examples of how he talked about it. I mean, if you read the discourses, the Buddha is talking about impermanence all the time. But it's only one of the three gateways. So uh, impermanence is uh, the gateway. Generally, it's said for people who have a lot of faith. And dukkha is the gateway for people who have a lot of concentration, talent for concentration. And anatta, the impermanent, or impersonal rather, not self, selflessness, quality of our conditioned reality. This is the gateway for people who have a lot of wisdom or uh, the ability to um, kind of analyze, see the implications of what's being seen. So you can just get a sense of what you're attracted to in terms of these three gates, gateways. So here's a few examples of how the Buddha talks about impermanence as one of those gates. And then for her, the faultless, immaculate eye of a Dhamma arose. So this, she, he's speaking about a person's insight, and he describes it as, Whatever is of the nature to arise, all that is of the nature to cease. And she or he thereby saw the Dhamma, attained the Dhamma, understood the Dhamma, penetrated the Dhamma. Remember the Dhamma, just the way things are. She, he crosses over all doubts, dispersed all confusion, achieved self-confidence, and no longer depended upon others in the Master's teachings. I really like that, you know, that idea of independence. Because in a, in a way, the real guru, the real teacher for us, is Dhamma. And the Buddha made this very clear. If you see Dhamma, you see the Buddha. If you see the Buddha, you see Dhamma. If you really see me, you're not seeing this individual, this body and this sort of personality. You're, if you're really seeing me, you're seeing me in terms of anicca, dukkha, anatta. And this is Dhamma. This is, this is uh, what uh, experience expresses when the mind is calm. You know, when we're really calm and we're walking in the woods, what becomes apparent there walking in the woods is the aliveness of that experience. You know, because when we're walking in the woods and we're not calm, then we're telling ourselves stories about the woods. You know, I like hardwood forests, not conifers, or I like meadows, not forests, or I'd like to put my cabin here, not over there. I mean, that's often what we're doing in the woods. But when we're really relaxed and calm, 
not projecting or imputing anything. It's a different experience. The aliveness, the, the anicca quality becomes apparent. Any uh, activity where the mind is grasping, conceiving of any kind is seen as unnecessary and stressful. It's like we don't need, it's like trying to grab a hold of something beautiful ruins it. And we see that. And we see how it doesn't belong to anybody, didn't, doesn't have a center, the experience. Here's another passage from the Buddhist teachings. Just as a farmer working after the rains with a great plow bursts asunder the spreading roots as he plows, just as a reed cutter, when cutting reeds, seizes them by the stem, shakes them around and rips them out, casts them aside, just as after the rains, when the sky clears of the retreating rain clouds, the sun rises up into the sky, driving away all darkness from the heavens and illuminates, warms, and shines forth. So also the perception of impermanence, when developed and practiced, shatters all lust for the sense realm, shatters all lust for the form realm, shatters all lust for any existence, shatters all ignorance and uproots all selfish conceits. So if you take up impermanence as as one of the themes in your meditation, when the mind is calm, whether you're walking or sitting or doing your lunch, this is something you can keep bringing back. And actually, late at night is a really good time for this. So whether you stay at 10 or... But whenever you go home and there you are in bed, sitting up or lying down, whatever feels right, then take up the theme because having made good effort to be on the retreat the whole day, there you are at home, you know you've got sleep. And generally, not always, but generally there's a real sense of ease at that time. You know how nice it is to be in your own home, in your bed. You don't have to practice, so it's voluntary. You know, so it has a it has kind of a special quality because it's not forced on you. You know, everyone else is sitting. I got to sit. The mind is just more sort of relaxed, and so to just to take up the theme of impermanence. This is Ajahn Chah. The Buddha taught about impermanence. This is the way things are. They don't follow anyone's wishes. That is a noble truth. Impermanence rules the world, and that is something permanent. This is the point we are deluded at, so this is where you should be looking. Whatever occurs, recognize it as right. Everything is right in its own nature, which is ceaseless motion and change. Our bodies exist thus. All phenomena of the bodies and mind exist thus. We can't stop them. They can't be stilled. Not being stilled means their nature of impermanence. Not being stilled means their nature of impermanence. If we don't struggle with this reality, then wherever we are, we will be happy. Wherever we sit, we are happy. Wherever we sleep, we are happy. Even when we get old, we won't make a big deal out of it. You stand up and your back hurts and you think, it's about right. It's right, so we don't fight it. When the pain stops, you might think, ah, that's better. But it's not better. You're still alive, so it will hurt, it will hurt again. This is the way it is. So you. 
have to keep turning your mind to this contemplation and not let it back away from the practice. Keep steadily at it. And don't trust in things too much. Trust the Dhamma instead, that life is like this. Don't believe in happiness. Don't believe in suffering. Don't get stuck in following after anything. So whatever we look at, you know, the habit, the conditioned habit of the mind is to create some sort of fixed ground. But whether we're looking at the mind or we're looking externally or looking at sensation in the body, we want to notice the constancy of change. That this is the this is the law. You know, this is Manindadri, one of Sharon and Joseph's teachers, use that line. This is the law. Some of you have heard Kamala talk about when she hosted Manindaji when he was staying in Hawaii, and this real kind of upsetting event happened at her house between her daughter and her husband. It was just a real mess. And Kamala was going to try to fix it. And Manindaji lovingly put his hand on her arm, I think, and said, this is the law. You know, just as a, like to really see this about our experience and to let it kind of in, let it inform us. So in terms of change, what we're doing is developing the perce- perception of change everywhere and then learning to be at peace with change. Now, the only way we can be at peace with change is to drop the sense of a center or the sense of self. Because when there's a fixed notion like me, then change and permanence is a threat. So the only way we can truly be intimate with Dhamma, the way things are with change, is we have to lose a sense of center, a sense of self. We have to drop it. So this is like a beautiful barometer. Now there's something um, in learning theory that, that uh, in educational learning theory, of training of teachers, that's really important here. We need constant feedback to know whether what we're doing is useful or not, productive or not. So like in uh, educational circles, one of the new, it's not new so much anymore, but kind of developed in the 80s and 90s, was this sort of immediate feedback for students. So, so much of the instructional activities will have built-in feedback for the student. Like, are they getting it right? And sometimes it's just a matter of the teacher asking some questions, you know, to see if the students are understanding. But sometimes it's just built in. And this is the same in, in Dharma practice. We need immediate feedback. I've been talking the last couple of days about the experience of freedom, why it's such an important value, because it provides that feedback. And so in terms of change, you know, we have this perception, developing this perception of change, and it's going to activate our conditioned aversion to, to insecurity, because that's what change, that's what the perception of change will do. But we don't want to just assume that's the end of it. Oh, I don't like change. I don't like uncertainty. I don't like insecurity. We want to actually investigate whether that's true, whether it has to be that way. So in this way, we can be grateful with the perception of change and the perception of uncertainty and onward to dukkha, you know, the perception of the unsatisfactoriness, the perception of the conditional nature, how everything's ungovernable. I've really been working with this over the last few years at Common Ground, with just, you know, as it becomes a bigger organization and the move, of course, and the, you know, and the, 
the renovation, the purchase and renovation of the building, and just all the unavoidable difficulties that arise for all of us in our positions, and me in my position. And uh, as it appears more and more ungovernable, I'm learning more and more now to welcome it. Like, well, let's see, what kind of heart is exposed when I say yes to the ungovernableness of my life, being overwhelmed, having more to do than I can do, not knowing how to handle a particular situation. So by saying yes, by opening, I realize the heart that isn't bothered by insecurity, that isn't bothered by humiliation, that isn't bothered by uh, impermanence, change. And so we can all, all of us, use our life that way and use the retreat this way. So I'll just end with a, a poem from, uh, some of you know, Jane, Jane Kenyon. It's called Otherwise. Mark Berge sent, sent me this poem. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. Let's just sit for a few minutes, contemplate change and impermanence. Conditioned things arise and pass away. Understanding this deeply leads to the deepest happiness, which is peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate